Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast with Simon Cocking, Senior Editor. I'll be doing a series of interviews with people at the cutting edge of green tech, clean tech, and anything else that we think is interesting and worth listening to for you guys, our listeners. Okay, so today on the podcast, uh, we have someone whose book we've just reviewed recently, and uh, it's it's a very topical thing in a way that you may not realize because we're starting to learn a lot more about it. So first of all, uh, who do I have the pleasure of talking to talking with today? Hi, I'm Emma Chapman and I'm an astrophysicist based at Imperial College London and I'm funded by the Royal Society, which I should mention. Cool. Um, so you've just recently uh, written First Light, uh, Switching on the Stars at the Dawn of Time, uh, which we reviewed. Uh, it's great. Um, was it a labour of love? I mean, like in your book, you talk about how as a kid you had a journey towards working out what it was you wanted to do. So therefore, is the book a logical outcome of a long journey? Yeah, this book was actually mostly about me putting down everything that I've learnt and everything that's new in the past decade of my career. Uh, you can get so tied up in the minutiae of your daily job. So my my job is quite techie. It's um, signal processing, really. It's it's removing a heck of a lot of noise and rubbish, which is on top of the signal that we want to detect, the signal from the first stars. You can get really bogged down in the details of that. And for me, this was indeed a labour of love to remind myself about why I was doing what I am doing and how incredibly awesome I find it. Um, so this book really is zooming out of my my job, which is to search for the first stars to exist in our universe. Yeah, look, I mean, and 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 it's, I guess, in your book, you capture both your journey, but also the fact uh, since Hubble and since beyond Hubble, um, we're actually learning a lot of new things. Like this is definitely not a static time for understanding this kind of thing, is it? No, not at all. Um, this is a an incredibly uh, dynamic time uh, in astrophysics in general, because we are have been able to build incredible collaborative instruments um, with money from multiple nations. So we've reached what's called precision cosmology, an age where we can really dig down into the, to constrain the finest parameters of how our universe grew. And in terms of my field, the era of the first stars, we just happen to be in this incredible decade right now, um, where in the last decade we've been using what we call current generation radio telescopes to detect mm -hmm. this time. But we're also always planning for the future as astrophysicists because it takes decades to build something new. And luckily I'm in the part of my career where we're still using the current generation. And in a couple of years, we're going to start putting down 130,000 radio antennas in the Western Australian desert to build what we call the square kilometre array. And that's going to revolutionise this field again because it's never been detected. We don't know much about it. It's a lost billion years in our timeline. We're going to turn this telescope on and reveal that time. Um, you can't get a better time in this field, in my opinion. We're also planning moon missions. So sending radio antennas to space because it's a lot quieter and makes my job a lot easier. <laughs> um, so this is another reason I wanted to re write the book right now, because I want to almost prime people for what's coming, get them excited. And I have all of the plans to write another one in, you know, some years now to sum up what we've learned in the last decade. Okay. 
So, I mean, yeah, and that's it seems quite exciting. So so the SKA, for example, uh, how soon will it be ready and uh, what kind of insights might it enable us to learn that we haven't been able to understand so far? Well, it's a little bit uncertain in terms of when we're going to put the first antennas down because of the current situation with the pandemic that has slowed everything down a little bit. However, I think we're pretty confident that the first antennas will go down in, let's say, next year, maybe the year after if we're a bit unlucky. Um, and we should be getting science results by the end of this decade. So maybe 2027, 2028, we'll have finished calibrating it because it's an incredibly difficult um, area, radio astronomy, to, to calibrate, to get it ready, really, so we understand every single antenna. But when we do switch it on, we are, for, for real, as it were, we're going to be able to look back to the 13 billion years ago. We're going to be measuring the light that has taken 13 billion years to get to us from the gas surrounding the first stars. And what we're going to be doing is taking the temperature of that hydrogen. Seeing what um, temperature it is tells us when the first stars um, sprung to life, began fusing and putting out that all of that heat and that light that we're used to with the sun. And it changes the temperature of the surrounding gas. So we're using that as a tracer because the light from the first stars itself, like the optical light that we might ideally want to see, is just too faint. But luckily, that hydrogen emits radiation, which is much more prevalent and so easier for us to detect. And we're going to do that over about a period of a billion years. So from around uh, a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, right to about one billion years after the Big Bang. We're going to build up a home movie of our universe, a, a real one, not a simulation. We're going to be able to watch um, the temperature of this uh, hydrogen, how it's ionized and burnt away really into, into Swiss cheese. Uh, it looks like a bit of Swiss cheese with holes in it. And that will tell us what was around in the in, in the early universe? How many first stars were there? How many black holes? When did the galaxies form? It's a wonderful historical time to open the tomb um, of this time to, to really make some incredible discoveries. Yeah, look, I mean, and I guess it's that thing where, you know, it's, it's almost a fundamental existential question of who are we and what did we come from, you know, at, at, at a very you know beyond global level um in in your book and in it, there are a few where areas where uh, we have begun to discover things that ran completely against what we expected that you know the universe is is not only still expanding but expanding faster than before um that there were periods in the past where things must have been so much more hot to create the things that we're seeing that it's hard to understand why um with, with the ska and and with this playing out of the first billion years um is is it almost very hard to phrase to, to phrase questions to test because so far some of the things that have been discovered are the complete opposite of, of what we thought we were going to find so we will we always have questions uh, you're not a good scientist if you end the day thinking you know everything um and it's absolutely true that our first detection of this era uh two years ago gosh really 
yeah, two and a half years ago now, um, did measure the temperature of the universe very early on, uh, 180 million years after the Big Bang. And what they found was the time when that that hydrogen was being heated for the first time. So they found uh, tentatively, we need it validated, but um, tentatively we can say they found that time. However, they also found the hydrogen um, temperature at that time to be much colder than we expected. Mm -hmm. And that's really unusual. It didn't fit any of our models. And there's a huge amount of conjecture now about whether the detection was just plain wrong, uh, which is why we need it validated, or whether it's showing us something completely unknown that we need to figure out and we need to ask new questions. For example, what can make hydrogen colder in the early universe? Could it be dark matter? That's one idea. Um, it's less favoured now, I must admit. But if true, it has incredible connotations for the dark matter field, which um, is a field desperate for data as well. So, yes, we're having to ask questions we never expected to have to ask. But that's the most exciting thing that can happen in science. We call them unknown unknowns. Mm. And we almost hope to find them when we when we observe the sky. Yeah, look, I mean, and I remember with the uh, the Hadron, uh, the collision in CERN where, you know, they were going, well, we, we imagine we'll find this, but as time was going by, they weren't finding what they expected to, but that in itself was going to prove or disprove something as well. Um, we were, so my nine-year-old was recently asking, uh, she's very into the stars and she was saying, you know, well, what happened before the Big Bang? And then we managed to, we found uh, the Brian Cox lecture that he did in Australia maybe two years ago of looking at that time before the Big Bang. With, with what you're doing, will it, how how do we begin to even understand if if there were there many big bangs were there parallel big bangs uh can we even tap into that aspect of things not with this research because what happens is when you're detecting light which is what we're doing radio radio waves are a type of light they're just the longest wavelength of light whereas we're used to seeing an optical so what we're doing is we're using light as a diagnostic tool about 380,000 years after the big bang um observing any time before that using light is impossible because the universe is just too violent too hot to allow light to have a straight path to us really it's like you trying to walk on a train concourse when there's a hundred hyper sugar crazed children running in every direction you have to dodge and dodge and dodge to get through whereas after that time three hundred eighty thousand years after the big bang everything cooled down enough so the parents took hold of their children by the hand um, and suddenly you could walk through clearly and that's what happened with the light so no because we're using light we can't look before that time um it's an in incredible questions that you're asking that you know what i understand it at exactly the same level you do um and i think most people could say that to be honest because it is i always say the big bang is entirely preposterous it's ridiculous but it is supported by so much evidence that against all of our um, intuition we have to accept that it was true and I had a colleague uh, a few years ago now actually who did his PhD on colliding universes okay. <laughs> and how we can measure the effect of parallel universes that that collide that might have collided with us when our universe was just just growing and what effect that would have had could we measure it on the radiation left over from the Big Bang and I never understood what he was doing <laughs> Quite frankly, uh, we do get into niches as, as astrophysicists, and this one is, yeah, not not my not my field. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and I guess like you say with these things, you you strip away all the things that are definitely not possible, and then as they say, whatever's left, however implausible, is more likely to be possible than the things that you've disproved. Um, in in your book, you do mention the uh, James Webb Space Telescope a little bit just at the end, and I mean that is due to go into space next year. So so just for the for the more general conversation, what what kind of insights might that give us because obviously the concept of having a really good telescope outside of the earth's atmosphere you'd imagine is going to give a degree of you know accuracy that we didn't have before so so, so what kind of things might that enable us to learn more about in terms of the year of the first stars the james webb space telescope was not necessarily built for the first stars however it is an incredible instrument which is going to be able to pick up um, all types of light signals from all types of things. For example, the first galaxies, it will be able to hopefully image. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a chance, it's a small chance, but there is a chance that we might actually be able to pick up the light from the first supernovae. So the first stars um, finish their lives in incredible explosions, which we call supernovae, where the entire being of the star was ripped apart in an incredibly, some, one of the brightest energetic events that you can get in the universe. Now, if the James Webb Space Telescope is looking in the right direction, if that supernovae was bright enough, if it is magnified by a galaxy, so you can have basically if the light um, goes uh, to a big enough galaxy it can be what we call gravitationally lensed so it can be boosted by that okay. if this happens at the right time then we might be able to pick that up and that would tell us a huge amount about the era of the first stars because learning how they died you know it's just like archaeology digging up the digging up the mummies you can infer a huge amount you can even tell what would they eat ate for their mm. last meal five thousand years ago you know yeah. um this is the same we can tell what the first stars ate for their last meal what kind of metals sorry what kind of heavier elements we call those metals in astrophysics what kind of heavier elements were created um by those first stars so another exciting avenue in the next decade yeah, oh, definitely. And I, I think it's great. And like you say, it, it takes years to plan. I mean, and we recently reviewed the Voyager book. I mean, and, you know, that was launched in the 70s with, with the best of the software and the technology they had then. And yet it's still sending data back almost 50 years later. So, you know, like it, getting these things out there is fantastic. And, and the benefits just seem to keep coming back for a long time afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there are benefits to all kinds of human interests, actually. So, of course, we have a cultural motivation, a moral motivation almost, um, because we have looked to the stars as long as we have had eyes to look. Um, we have always found patterns in the stars. We've looked further and found patterns in the movement of the planets. And now we're looking back even further. So there's a, there's there's definitely a degree of wanting to fill in the unknown as humans, as you said we always want to know where we came from well you can't look back further than the first stars in terms of what we came from because they created the elements that we're made of um they fused hydrogen they fu travel maybe we will you know, create um who, who knows what will happen in the future but it's certainly not something for me and you to worry about <laughs> And and another one on that was is that potentially with the, with the distance that we can see, you know, so it's like you know two and a half billion light years, we we, we could potentially observe a civilization, but but it could be one that's two and a half billion years in the past or light years in the past. Absolutely, absolutely, because light has a finite speed. It means that um, it takes a little bit of time to get to us uh, on Earth. 
it's so fast we just don't see it. But for example, if a friend waves to you from the moon 1.3 seconds in the past, the same with the sun, we see the sun eight minutes in the past. And so, yes, if we find a, a um, alien civilization, interestingly, the square kilometer array, if there's an airport radar or in another um, on another planet in the Milky Way, we'll be able to pick it up. Wow. <laughs> That's how sensitive this instrument is. But exactly that radio um that radio signal would have been given out 2.5 million years ago if we're talking about our closest galaxy andromeda so we'd be looking 2.5 million years in the past yep <laughs> um how what are your sources of inspiration and how do you stay informed and up to date uh, like who do you watch or follow or learn from um, I follow a huge amount of the scientific collaboration. So like ESA, the European Space Agency, NASA, um, obviously the US version. Um, the Chinese science programs are starting to really yield a lot of impressive results. So last mm. night, yes. um, Chung'e 5 landed on the dark side of the moon in order to um, dig up some stuff and bring back a sample for the first time and, you know, an entirely uncrewed mission. Uh, things but uh, i i read a lot as well so you know i subscribe to new scientists i've got physics world and um, bbc science focus all of these things because i love science i love science of all kinds and as i've mentioned i don't like to get too buried in one area i like to mm -hmm. see the larger context and also so much uh, progress is made because we find something in a different field of science and apply it to another field um, the signal processing elements that I use to take the temperature of, of the hydrogen, um, they're also used on brain scans to uh, to separate out the different signals there. Oh. Uh, they're used in signal processing. So one element of them will be used in the software that I'm speaking to you now to make sure that any outside sounds are filtered out um, okay. automatically, for example. It's it's been very interesting to talk to you. Um, how can people learn more about you and your work and what you do? Uh, well, first of all, um, I'd love it if they bought my book. It's called First Light: Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time, and it came out last week. It's a lovely Christmas present. It's a very pretty book, um, and it really goes into everything I've spoken about today. Um, and I really hope that what people take away from it is a feeling of hope, which is something um, the sky is free for everyone to look at. And when I get down, including in lockdown, I look up at the skies because it's free and it's amazing and it's incredible and it's awe inspiring. So I thoroughly recommend people to do that. But um, when I'm not looking at the sky, um, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> so my handle is Dr. EO Chapman. Um, and yeah, you can find me on there all the time if anybody has any questions. Awesome. So look, thanks very much for taking the time to chat with us. And it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed that podcast and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find. You're welcome to reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn or by email and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future. Thanks and keep listening.